Hi, I'm Rosie Deloach. And I'm Derek Tatum. Welcome to Rabbit Hole Motel. We rabbit hole into the stories I obsess over. Strange true tales and mysteries from history, science, and the fringe. And I and a guest will wow you with our charm and sharp wit. Guiding him would lead him to a hall of records, a.k.a. the Akashic Records. Okay, this looks more like a Denny's. So long, New Jersey. Enjoy your time in the center of the earth. Come for an extended stay at Rabbit Hole Motel. Hotel.com or wherever fine podcasts are served. It's recording. What it is? No oh God. Get ready. Put down your LaCroix. We've got our podcast to record. Okay. Welcome, five listeners. You're it's- listening to Perhaps It's You. Perhaps it's you. An unofficial fan rewatch podcast of the classic television series Unsolved Mysteries. I'm Samantha. I'm Liz. And you're here listening to us mispronounce words. Yeah. Thank you. That's why you tuned in, isn't it? I'm pretty sure. And to get terrible financial advice. Right. (laughs) It turns out, we said on the show while we were saying it, that it was terrible financial advice. Turns out we were right about that. It was terrible financial advice. Unless... You're prepping for the apocalypse. And then it's excellent advice. Look, okay, so beef jerky is not literally more valuable than gold. Gold is way more valuable. But what can you eat when the world does go to shit? Beef jerky. Beef jerky. Gold? It's going to be fucking useless in the apocalypse. Yeah. Good luck doing anything with that. No, you need to stock up on beef jerky, and then you are set when the world ends. Which, listen, we are on a fast track to the apocalypse. Whew. And you might as well start stockpiling beef jerky. <laughs> I realize it's expensive, but it's going to be worth it. Yeah. Uh, Mac tried to console me and said that he thought there was a moment in the early aughts where the gold market crashed, and there was like a day when beef jerky was more valuable than gold. I don't know that that's true. Listen, the value we assigned to it. All yeah, right. So it's all a scam anyway. Yeah. Money's not real. No. So it's just paper <laughs> and rocks. So. It's just- Who's to say beef jerky couldn't be more valuable than gold? I I mean, one you can eat, and one is just shiny metal. Exactly. So think about it. Think about it. Think about it. We're so wise. Also, it turns out, no, actually, I'm, I don't know that I am going to apologize <laughs> for the pronunciation of a name. Of Marvin. Okay, so everyone on Facebook told us that it's not Marvin Belly. It's Marvin Belli. Listen, I realize this guy's famous. I never heard of him before this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I think I just don't care at all. <laughs> I assert that the correct pronunciation is belly. Apparently it's pronounced... <laughs> it still makes me laugh. Apparently it's pronounced belly. Well, if your last name was belly, wouldn't you want to change it? I think that's what this guy probably did. Or yeah. maybe someone in his family along the way were like, uh, com- and the internet agrees with us. Computer, how do you pronounce B-E-L-L-I? Belly. Um, are you sure that's not Belly? Belly. Hmm, see? Okay. We got it right. <laughs> this is howtopronounce.com slash B-E-L-L-I. <laughs> Mac also made up a really great story about how if you really knew Melvin Belly... His friends called him Belly, and he preferred it. But that was only for people in the know. Belly. <laughs> Belly. I'm just going to keep clicking That's it. That's not true. 
Look, why would we know that? I don't know. I had never Apparently heard of this person. Apparently everyone knows Apparently everyone knows this guy. I'd never heard of him before this episode. And it's spelled belly, so I don't know what to tell you. And also, howtopronounce.com agrees with us. Yeah. Obviously. That's the official <laughs> gavel <laughs> down. <laughs> Did Robert Stack probably pronounce it belly in the episode? And I just didn't remember. Yeah, probably. I again I don't care <laughs> I'm sorry the world is ending it's <laughs> bigger the <laughs> fish to fry not important uh, yeah it's been a long horrible week uh, everyone I hope you're hanging in there if you're actually listening to this in like vaguely real time man oh man stay hydrated that's <laughs> yeah. my advice it's, that honestly was hard for me this week e- remembering to like eat food eat that was not donuts some food it was hard. Drink some water. Wear because... some sunscreen when you go out to march. Uh, that's yes. our advice to you. Yeah. Wear a bandana around your neck just in case you get pepper sprayed. There you go. There's our advice. <laughs> uh, we have a couple updates. And they're not really updates. We just have to thank some more people for sending us some shit. Yeah. The, I'm so excited. The, the, this is the best part of the podcast for us and possibly the worst part for people who listen. But again, don't care. <laughs> so, friend of the pod, Angela forensic anthropologist sent us a gigantic care package from texas full of snacks of all of these texas snacks i wish i was eating the beaver nuggets right now they're amazing they're so good they're like corn puffs covered in caramel it's like caramel corn only you made it with corn puffs somehow i stopped eating them to record this podcast and my mouth is regretting it right now (laughs) they're so because i can see them from here there's like little brownies in this package there's chips shaped that were at one point were shaped like texas they didn't (laughs) quite come through the mail intact but pancake mix we've got brownies we've got oh my god so good pecan pralines i think i just said like a yankee we've got pickled okra we've got all sorts of shit yeah and she did mention that she thinks everyone with an apocalyptic prepper bunker has a case of beaver nuggets down there. Do you suppose beaver nuggets might be worth more than gold? I mean, in the end times, for sure. Also, even if there was a whole case of them in my bunker, would I eat them in two days? <laughs> Probably. I'd be up at midnight um, just eating um, beaver nuggets. You know what? That's fine because if there's really like a nuclear war, I don't know. They're not going to last that long. Anyway. I don't want to live to see the other side. Not so really. death by beaver nugget. Okay, fine. I'll just eat till I explode. Yes. Like that person in Seven and his spaghetti. Exactly. Except with beaver nuggets. Except with beaver nuggets. They're so good. So thank you so much, Angela. Pretty amazing. I don't know why people do that, but that's basically why I'm doing the podcast at this point. Because with the world stuff. ending, did I have moments this week where I went, why do I make a podcast about unsolved mysteries? <laughs> it seems There's so like insignificant. a lot of important stuff going on right now. But it does make us happy. It seems to make five other people happy. Maybe that's enough. I don't know. As you'll see from Try and keep the politics out of it, Liz. No, I can't. (laughs) Wait till you five listeners hear the topics that we have in this episode. You'll see why that is fucking impossible. You cannot keep the politics out of these subjects. But hopefully this brings a little joy into your life before the end comes down on all of us. I refer to these times as the apocalypse to someone, and they were like, oh, I, I, that's you being sarcastic. I choose to assume that you're joking. And I was like, I'm dead serious. <laughs> I've never been more serious about anything. 
It's rough. This is the end. Speaking of escapism, thank you to everyone on our Facebook page who posted their local commercials. Oh, I love it. I loved watching I every still have single a few one more to of watch. them. They're so good, oh though. Oh, my God. It, it has that. It just has this charm that I, I feel like is not going to exist soon. Like, people no. just won't make these sort of commercials. And we got to. These are jewels. It's a, little, it's a little time capsule. Thank God for YouTube because we'll be able to hang on to these forever. I need to find one. If you're in the Facebook group, I will post this. There is a local Chicago furniture commercial with Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins in a like furniture store ad wrestling. <laughs> it's very he's a weird good dude. So it's those are so everybody great. everybody needs to see that. We do have one more thing to open. This is actually yes, you guys. This is what's gonna get us through the end times. Uh we got our package from Studio Crafty. The Porpoise of Justice has arrived. We haven't opened it yet. Uh, but we're going to... Should I open it? Yeah. Can you just rip that open with your strong bare hands? Oh, I did it. Because I'm so strong. <laughs> this is the might. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. Oh my god, it's even cuter than I thought. It's so cute. Oh my god, look at his little hat. On his eyes. Oh my goodness. You guys, I have... And his white belly. It's so much cuter. Oh, you guys... I can't even go follow Studio Crafty on Instagram and see this all of her stuff. This is the nicest present. This is the cutest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. What? Look at his little police hat. I'm going to take a photo. This is the best part of the podcast where I stop to take Instagram photos. Yeah. You know what that Porpoise of Justice's name is other than the Porpoise of Justice? I think it's Melvin Belly. <laughs> is it Melvin? Belly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Belly. <laughs> Yep. That's Melvin Belly, all right. I can't click it any faster. That's unfortunate. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) We love you, five listeners. Continue to correct us. Don't get us wrong. We we misspeak all the time. Do we still call prisons jails constantly? Yeah, I think we did in the last episode. I don't know why I... Okay, back in the day when I complained about people calling jails prisons... That was like the first or second episode. We were still doing it. It's because of Jessica Jones. Okay. Because there is an episode of Jessica Jones where she, like, turns herself into a, for a crime and immediately demands to be put in Supermax prison. Like, immediately. And she was like, no, I need to go to Supermax. And I was like, uh, Jessica, you're a private investigator. You should know that's not how that works at all. <laughs> like, you don't get arrested and then go to Supermax prison. No. So that's why it was bothering me. Yeah, we're going to continue to get that wrong, and it's fine. Yeah, so here we are. We won't get it as wrong as the writers of Jessica Jones. Sure. Okay. You know what? This is a a tiny podcast, so whatever. Here we are. Do we have any other updates? (laughs) This is awesome. I feel like such a rocky start. (laughs) But you know what? what? I can't believe we're even here doing this, so you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome that you... That is a dream of mine. I would love to have a home makeover show on HGTV, which they would never give me because my style is so very different. But I would like to make over people's homes in a way that they would probably hate. It would be extremely kitschy. And then when they came home, be like, you're welcome. <laughs> They're like, this isn't what we wanted. Uh, you covered our floor with AstroTurf and filled it with plastic long flamingos. And I'd be like, yeah, you're welcome. That would be my show. That sounds amazing. Someone get me get me a meeting. Get me a deal. <laughs> Call let's, up HGTV. Let, let's make this happen. Right now. Yeah. 
I like it. Should we jump into this episode? I guess. I mean... There's three mysteries, and two of them are about missing children. So, if you've been trying to escape news about missing children, I'm sorry. It's very relevant to this episode. Yeah. If you've been having trouble getting out of bed because we live in a Holocaust-ish nightmare... Hey, sorry, sorry about this one. What's also hilarious is if you listen to our Christmas special about Forensic Files, where we picked episodes of Forensic Files that had to do with Christmas, but then it was extremely depressing, and we were like, this is a terrible idea for a Christmas special. <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries did the same goddamn thing. Yeah, this is the Christmas This is a Christmas episode. special. These, cr- these mysteries, they're not really crimes, all of them. These mysteries take place at Christmas. They're all depressing as hell. Super duper sad. You would think they would find like the Christmas miracle. Like last season. Some siblings to reunite or something. The Christmas episode in last season was in many ways very sad, but it was also one of the most heartwarming stories of Unsolved Mysteries that I've ever seen. Yeah, that you don't get that here. You just these ones are just punched in the face. Yep. It's like Merry Ro- Christmas. Robert Stack comes to your home and tells you you'll die alone and no one really loves you. And then he leaves. And then he goes, Merry Christmas. That's kind of what this one is. I'm picturing Robert Stack wearing a Santa hat when he what comes the, to deliver the trench this. Coat? He's wearing a trench coat, a Santa hat. The Santa hat is embroidered stack on it. <laughs> and you just open the door and you're like, oh, my God, why are you here? And he's like, I have some news. Update, he says. <laughs> Update. You'll you'll die alone and everyone hates you. (laughs) Yeah. Bye. Bye. Merry Christmas. Perhaps you can bum out Christmas. (laughs) Perhaps. Who can ruin Christmas? Perhaps it's you. Perhaps you can bum out Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't make sense. I don't care. Invest invest in beef jerky. (laughs) That's my still my financial advice. Don't pose with a pyramid you think is solid gold. Invest in beef what jerky. What have you posed with a pyramid of beef jerky? <laughs> Someone, the police officer has to be there because it's worth $5,000. Yeah. Solid pyramid of jerky. Oh, my God. Oh, dear. So off the rails, and you know what? Fuck it. All right, you ready? We're on season two, episode 11, if you're following along on Amazon Prime. It's episode 12, but close enough. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, whatever. You know what? Uh, Amazon is our evil overlords, and this podcast depends on them, yet... Unfortunately. It hates them. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be the loopiest nonsense yet. I'm just staring at the purpose of justice. Yeah. Well, I love him. I'm, like, licking my lips thinking about beaver nuggets, so... (laughs) Mm -hmm. The first case is the case of the hat box, baby. You know, it could be worse. This one actually is not. We open on Christmas Eve, 1931, outside of Phoenix, Arizona. It's Christmas Eve. All right. Great. Around 8 p.m., Sharon Elliott, a seven-day-old baby, was found concealed in a lady's hat box that was abandoned in the Arizona desert near Florence, Arizona. So it opens with... A reenactment of an old-timey car driving down a dusty road into the desert. Mm-hmm. At night. At night. And I think they have car trouble. They Yeah, the car something. breaks down. So the car breaks down. The guy's like, oh, it looks like a belt or something. Yeah. It's, uh, In the reenactment. Let's see here. Who knows? Unsolved Mystery says that he was repairing a broken fuel line. Or that. That sounds hard to repair by yourself in the desert. But yeah. anyway. Whatever. Uh, so he's working on the car. And... Uh, it's Ed, Ed Stewart, 
And his wife, Julia, goes, I'm going to stretch my legs. And he says, I wrote this down, careful out there, there's scorpions. <laughs> Which is just hilarious. Also, when I moved to New Mexico, every single person in the Midwest, upon hearing this news, told me, Liz, every time you put on your shoes. To check them for scorpions. Check them for scorpions. You know what I never saw once? A scorpion. Yep. <laughs> Which makes me think, it's the same as if you're going to Chicago and people are warning you that if you wear your hat the wrong way, someone in a gang's going to kill you. Also, not true. Not going to happen. Not true. Not so scorpions happen. are the gang members of the <laughs> southwestern desert. It's more myth than... Those poor misunderstood scor- scorpions. Yeah. They're just trying to live their lives. They're just trying to hang out and, I don't know, sting stuff, I guess. And <laughs> people going around... Stop living their scorpion lives. Living their scorpion lives. Leave us alone. Okay, wow. So, anyway. Julia Stewart is like, I'm going to go stretch my legs in scorpion country. And she starts to wander away from the car. This is actually a very cool reenactment, I think, the way that this is shot. And she finds a, a lady's hat box just sitting there, closed, which is disturbing to me. Yeah. And then Ed says, she like calls to Ed, and he's like, what? Because they can hear something inside the box. Is the box full of scorpions? <laughs> no. There's a full baby in there. one baby. There's a healthy little baby hanging out on a blanket in the in the box um they oh they thought it might be a kid or a puppy but they didn't think it was scorpions <laughs> did they no maybe i don't know so they find the little red-headed baby and as soon as they get the car running again they rush the infant to mesa arizona to the police station where chief of police joe let's just say belly no it's mayor <laughs> <laughs> received and transported her to the local maternity home run by a woman called ma dana which i found hilarious in this reenactment that so they like bring the baby to this like very small police like a quaint police station it was very quaint and yeah it's christmas eve and the sheriff's like what you found a baby in the desert well i guess i can get her over to ma dana as if the people like know what he's talking about and then they're just like, he's like, all right, enjoy your Christmas Eve. And they're like, bye. Uh, so a doctor determined that the baby was perfectly healthy. The discovery of a young baby in a hat box soon became national news. It was a symbol of hope for those suffering the Great Depression. Maybe that's what we need now. A hat box baby? <laughs> no, not really. Oh, but well. <laughs> definitely. It was like a Christmas miracle, though. Right. The idea that this baby had survived and was perfectly healthy despite being abandoned in the desert was like... In the middle of winter, which the desert is very cold at Guess, night. Yes. And she didn't get eaten by a coyote. Right. Uh, or stung by or a scorpion. stung by a thousand scorpions all in the face. Um, <laughs> it would be a horrible way to go. Especially so, for a baby. So bad. Okay, I'm going to stop this. And I can't remember where the story takes place, but I'm going to tell a story about my mother, who's had lots of weird stuff happening to her. And once as a child, she was out camping with her family, her father and siblings, and they pulled into a campsite like really late at night. I'm sure their car broke down somewhere. And that's what was always <laughs> happening. So they get there after dark. Her dad just ran the car out of gas. Yes, he did because he didn't like going to gas stations with children. So he would literally just run out of gas in like the <laughs> middle of deserts and stuff because he would rather walk <laughs> to wherever to get gas than go to a gas station with children. Is that 
logical. It's a little extreme. I feel no. like parents probably understand. Your kids are probably always asking you for candy and shit. But like, also leaving them in the desert, the car. Oh yeah, they would just Maybe get. Not- they got left in Death Valley and had to hide under the car for shade. Anyway, that's unrelated to this story. Um, so they pull into this campsite really late at night. They he sets up a tent in the dark and they go to sleep. They are woken up at like two a.m. by a screaming park ranger from a car being like what the hell are you doing get out of here this place is like off limits or condemned or however you would phrase that they had set up their tent on a nest of like clear scorpions (laughs) (laughs) and they weren't supposed to be camping there it was closed off but they didn't see it because it was dark was this just like where all the scorpions went to nest yeah closed it out yeah Oh, my God. And they set up their tent right on it. And so they woke up, had to clean up all their stuff, and there was just, like, scorpions running around. Again, they were all fine. Yeah. But the were idea... Were any of them in their shoes? <laughs> probably all of them. It's probably where they found all the scorpions. But just the, just imagine my, my mom and her siblings waking up on a giant pile of scorpions. <laughs> that could have been this baby, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. That's how this relates. I'm painting a tale. Yes. So she was a symbol of hope those suffering through the Great Depression. The child was put up for adoption. On February 16th, 1932, a hearing was held at the courthouse in Florence, Arizona. 17 couples expressed interest in adopting a baby. This baby was almost like a minor celebrity, the Hatbox baby. Yes, and this judge used the most ridiculous system of choosing one of them that I've ever seen. I mean, we're just, I guess, to assume that like all of the couples were equally as qualified to have this baby, I'm not really sure. But he turned to one and he was like, well, they don't have a baby yet, so we're going to give it to you. Yeah, what? Like, you're doling out candy to children? Like, you don't have a piece yet, so you get it. Maybe right. we should use some other criteria to give out babies. <laughs> and just like, you don't have one yet, so it goes Obviously, to you. Obviously, all women need babies, or they go insane, Samantha. I guess. We got to give out babies. So, it was to protect her feeble lady mind. Sure. Probably. Sharon was subsequently adopted by Faith Marrow and her husband. So, Sharon Elliott, who is a hatbox baby, grew up having no idea that she was adopted. Because they sealed the records after that hearing. And I think only the people who were in the courthouse knew which couple got the baby. And there's a scene of, like, the press being asked to not invade the privacy of the hatbox baby. Yes. And apparently they listened to that. I don't know. I guess. And uh, (laughs) it seems unlikely. (laughs) But, um, so she actually grew up. She had a normal life. She had no idea. I, that's nice that she never felt like something was amiss. Yeah. She was never like, oh, I don't really fit in. And then later found out she was a hatbox baby. I went, oh, that makes sense. No, it seems like she had good parents. She had a, she had a, she a had good a childhood. Good childhood. And at some point, her mother revealed to her, guess what? You're actually this hatbox baby, a story she had never even heard of. Yep. And she was quite shocked. And she was just curious as to her biological parents and what exactly had happened. So she began searching for them. Uh, she was she worked with an organization called Orphan Voyage to become involved with the case, and an investigator helped her get the court records that had been sealed. Reading through the le- records, she became sort of skeptical of this desert tale. Yes. Like, what are the odds that this car would break down? In the exact spot in the entire desert... Yeah. Where this baby was in in a box. It's not at a stop. No. It's just at a, an unmarked desert road. 
in the middle of nowhere. It was also unusual that these people were out on Christmas Eve with no apparent destination. They were just like driving, driving around. around. And apparently they had a young child that they left at home. Uh-huh. And people were like, why did they leave this this infant at home to drive out into the desert? And then their car breaks down. And then it happens to be right where there was a box with a baby in it. It's very suspicious. According to the records, the Stewarts had left at dawn on Christmas Eve, as you do, you know, to drive to the mountains. Sure. Probably looking for scorpions. Once they stopped, they stopped once at Roosevelt, Arizona, which might have been where they picked up a baby. People are still investigating the case. They hope that someone living might help them solve it. And Sharon will finally know whether it was a Christmas miracle that she was found or whether she was placed somewhere where someone knew she was found. So... This is sort of unresolved, sort of not. She was able to track down the Stewarts. They did not like being questioned about the story. No. I don't think which is the, surprising. You I don't think, think anyone at the time really questioned them. Like, what? What happened? Really? Why? Because people just loved the tale of it. Yes, it was cute. It was really what everyone wanted to hear. So at some point, when someone was like, "This story doesn't make any sense," they were like, "How dare you?" They didn't really appreciate it. They said they remembered the incident very well, but they didn't want to be involved with unsolved mysteries, and they didn't appreciate the skepticism following the case. Sharon's adopted mother told her she had given all of her adoption documents to a friend. Okay, why? It turned out that the friend was actually Sharon's biological cousin. It stated that Sharon's mother was apparently Edna Sherman Rowe, who Sharon... Who had Sharon out of wedlock at the age of 15. Reports state that she died in a plane crash in 51. However, she does have a niece living in Tucson. She also attempted to contact a woman so that so that DNA testing could be done. But that person doesn't want to be involved. I think it's pretty clear that they didn't really Just find, find the baby. <laughs> this baby in the desert. But I have to say, I feel like that lie was a gift. Because it got her adopted like got 17 couples interested in adopting this baby yeah it seems like she got a really good family and a really good life right so i think they did her a service making up this bullshit i really do given the time given the circumstances i think there was clearly a lot of compassion i don't think anyone did this out of ill intent i think they were trying to protect the baby they were trying to protect the mother yeah i i I understand sort of that they're bitter about being questioned on it and don't want to be called liars, except that they're lying. <laughs> except for that. Just that. They're, they've all passed on by this point. Yeah, I think I'm fine with it. I'm fine with that they lied about it. I think, yeah, given the circumstances, it's like the best possible outcome. Mm-hmm. Seems to have worked out for everyone, really. Unwed mothers were often institutionalized or, you know, sent to homes, had their babies taken from them anyway. Like, I think everyone involved was just trying to do what was best. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming this person didn't want the baby, I guess. But with that assumption, they got they got her a good life, and she seemed happy. Yeah. So, I don't know, find a baby in a hat box. This story could be yours. <laughs> it could. I'm excited about those beaver nuggets. Mm-hmm. I'm not super excited about talking about this one, because it is a massive injustice, but here it we go. It is a bummer. This sure is. This is how... Robert Stack makes Christmas a bummer. So Robert Stack bums out Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't even make sense. It's like Christmas has feelings. 
You know? <laughs> Maybe it does, Liz. I guess. We've never really been friends, me and Christmas. We're not best buds. So this maybe this all really makes sense to me in my worldview. Possibly. All right, this is a final appeal. So the segment opens with a man and his young son coming home to what seems to be an empty house. It is decorated for Christmas. They're shouting Donna and Mom. Presumably they're looking for the wife and mother of the two. They obviously expect her to be home. The TV is on, but she's nowhere to be found. Robert Stack's voiceover tells us that it is December 22nd, 1962, and we're in Chicago, Illinois. Home of Mothman. Home of Mothman. Could Mothman be connected to this case? Uh, I think the decades are a little odd. If Mothman was trying to warn people about this injustice... He he really he failed at that. His one. time travel didn't work so well. Nah. So John Branion is a 41 year old physician. He has come home with his son Joby to pick up his wife and go Christmas shopping as a family. John thought that something must be wrong because all of the lights were on as well as both of the family's TVs. So the two walk around the house looking for Donna. Unfortunately, when they reach the utility room, John sees two legs sticking out into the hallway, and he knows right away that Donna is dead. Mm. Merry Christmas! Yeah, again. So, Yay! Oh, it's such a bummer. So we see present-day John at this point in the episode, and spoiler alert, he's clearly in prison. John says that he knew right away that Donna had died. He tells us that he switched off the lights, grabbed his son, and rushed out of the house. He immediately calls the police, and we see a very cute old police car race onto the scene. Yeah, that's nice. In the reenactment, two officers... like, bright spot in this whole thing. Pretty much. So in the reenactment, two officers sprint out of the car and into the house while Robert Stack's voiceover tells us that five months later, John Branion will be on trial fighting for his life. Yeah, sorry, John. Today, John Branion is serving 20 to 30 years for first-degree murder. He is in Illinois' Dixon Correctional Facility. John da- John's daughter... Jan makes an appearance. She tells us that the whole thing was an atrocity and that she believes her father was set up. Next, we see Dr. Douglas R. Shanklin, who Unsolved Mysteries tells us is a pathologist. Dr. Shanklin believes that John is innocent. He tells us that the evidence proves that John could physically not have been at the scene of the murder. We also hear from a professor of law at Northwestern University. This man's name is Anthony D'Amato. He believes that the jury was emotionally caught up in the case and just forgot or didn't pay attention to the evidence that overwhelmingly proved that John couldn't have been the killer. Heartbreakingly, John comes back and tells us that he couldn't have murdered the mother of his children. He couldn't have murdered his high school sweetheart. The two had known each other since they were 14 which is very sad. Mm. Robert Stack appears in the middle of a prison. He's wearing a very smart-looking pea coat. I did write down, great coat on Stack. Mm -hmm. He tells us that the debate over John Branion's guilt or innocence is literally a matter of life and death because John has suffered five heart attacks and desperately needs a heart transplant. But because he's a convicted murderer, he has been denied a new heart. So, yeah. I'm just sitting here frowning. Yeah, there's no, I don't even know what we, to say. We can't even make jokes about this. This is horrible. Yeah. So, Robert Stack very dramatically says that this is John Branion's story. And we cut to footage of 1960s civil rights marches. The crowd is singing We Shall Overcome, and they are sharply contrasted by stoic white police officers flanking the march on both sides. We see Martin Luther King Jr. walking among the marchers, and Robert Stack tells us that John Branion was there marching at his side. Because in 1966, Branion was King's personal physician in Chicago. Which is amazing. Yeah. Robert Stack tells us that Chicago was a racial battleground in those years, and Branion was on the front lines. 
All the while Robert Stack is telling us this, we see disturbing images of white men in wife-beater tank tops beating baseball bats on the ground and chanting indecipherable taunts. Lovely. Yeah, it definitely doesn't have any echoes to modern day. No, I don't see... I don't see, see any you, connection. Why would you bring politics into this, Samantha? I see no I connection. I said it didn't. It's just totally... This is in the past. Robert Stack goes on to tell us that Branyan also provided medical services to the Black Panthers and other groups, which was probably not popular with the establishment. That last part is conjecture on my part, but Robert Stack confirms this by telling us that, not surprisingly, Branyan was viewed with hostility by the Chicago police. Mm-hmm. Present-day Branyan says that he started early in his life fighting for equal white rights, hoping that someday there would be equal rights. Inspiringly, he adds that he will continue to fight when he gets out of prison. Yeah, he did seem optimistic. He did. He seemed still hopeful, despite this injustice and the situation that he's in. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, he it also was comes across as so likable. Very likable, very reasonable, and logical. Yeah. Very cool-headed. Yeah. Not a cool really angry. No. You know how we just got really mad about mispronoun- when we mispronounced something? We got mad about it? This guy is calmer about wrong being wrongfully convicted of murder. And the fact that he might die in prison because he can't get a heart transplant. Yeah. So here is what happened the day of the murder. Keep an eye out for any evidence connecting... Yeah. Shot to this case. Yeah, keep an eye out. So first of all, investigators found four shell casings from a 9mm gun next to Donna's body. They assumed that she had been shot four times. Investigators questioned John, discovering that he was an avid gun Wait, was collector. She not, was she shot four times? We'll talk about this later, but she was actually shot 13 times. And they found four shell casings. That wasn't in the in the episode, but I read an article, a more modern I cannot article. pick up my jaw off the floor. Yeah. They just assume They made a lot of assumptions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he was an avid gun collector. As such, he did own a 9mm gun, or at least a gun that could shoot 9mm bullets. I'm not a gun expert. I don't know. Police asked John to give them any gun capable of firing a 9mm bullet. John gave them a Luger. Um, I'm assuming that they didn't have a warrant for this. Uh, they just no, asked him I, to turn over a gun, he, and he did. He cooperated. Which, don't cooperate with the police, but that's a separate issue. Learn. Learn from this story. Police determined that the gun had not been fired recently. They will later claim that John denied owning any other gun that could shoot 9mm bullets. That same day, Branyan gives detectives his alibi, which goes as follows. He leaves the community clinic where he worked at 11.35am. The hospital's administrator sees him and they have a brief conversation outside the clinic. He arrives at his son's daycare at 11.45. A teacher there sees him and confirms this. The two next stop to visit John's wife's cousin, Maxine Brown, for lunch. Uh, however, something came up and with a Maxine at her work, and she tells them she can no longer go. We're not given a time for this, but we do learn that after leaving her office, Branyan and Joby head home, and they arrive around noon where John discovers the body of his wife. So the detectives ask if John would take a lie detector test. Someone who isn't named, but who I'm assuming is John's lawyer, advises against it. Yeah, wisely. Yep. Because that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. John declines the lie detector, but requests a nitrate test, which would have shown if there was gunshot residue on his hands. Unfortunately, for reasons not given, the Chicago PD were unable to perform such a test. Uh-huh, I'm sure they were really unable which- to. Which... What I've learned about gunshot residue tests from, 
I can't honestly remember if it was a pod, a recent podcast or a TV show, is that just like being in a police car can get you gunshot residue on your hand. Really? Or just like being in a police station oh. can result in you having gunshot particles on your hand. Huh. But yeah, you can pick I up gunshot no residue from just being in a place where people are who handle guns a lot, like a police station. Good to know. Just so you know. So it was probably a good thing that they we didn't were, perform this test. We maybe didn't give you the greatest advice about beef jerky, but we are giving you some solid legal Don't advice right now. Don't hand things over to the police unless no. they have a warrant to take it. Do not subject yourself, do not agree to any tests, lie detector tests, gunshot residue tests, no. blood tests, any tests. Don't even talk to the police. Go on Etsy, get someone to embroider you a nice hoop frame that says, come back with a warrant and... Hang it by your door so you'll never forget. And then just, when they show up, just point at it. (laughs) Only I would give legal advice that involves shopping on Etsy. (laughs) (laughs) Here's my legal advice for you. I am such an expert. So Brandon was released that night without being charged, but a month later, police unexpectedly showed up at the clinic where Brandon worked and arrested him for murder, which is shitty in front of all of his coworkers and his community, but that's how they operate. One of my favorite parts of Law and Order is whenever, like, the mayor or some, like, fancy rich person was getting arrested for murder, they always did it at, like, a gala. (laughs) It was always like they were about to, like, get up to a podium and give a speech, and then Lenny Briscoe would come up and be like... Save those words for later, Richie Rich. Like, we're taking you downtown. It's funny when you said Lenny Briscoe, I pictured your dog marching in to arrest someone. I mean, he would. He's like, I'm arresting you for not giving me peanut butter. (laughs) Or whatever he would arrest someone for. He's going to arrest you because he wants you here every day. (laughs) He loves you so much. But that's, like, not how it works in real life. If you're, like, a rich, successful person, they, like, arrest you at your home. They They don't don't put handcuffs on you. They walk you out the back at night so no one can see you. That's, I mean, law and order is a big lie. And... (laughs) I like that lie that, yeah, the mayor or whoever would get arrested, like, at the podium in front of all of the press. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's not real life. So, Brannion was arrested on January 22nd, 1968. On April 4th of the same year, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. Racial tensions in Chicago were at an all-time high, and this is the polarizing atmosphere in which Brannion's trial began. Yeah, there was a really big riot. You can look up pictures. I did this after watching this episode, looked up photographs of the wreckage. It's like whole blocks are just rubble. It's crazy. It's insane. And this is when the trial basically began right after that. And very unsurprisingly, the jury was made up of 11 white people and one black person. I feel really bad for that black person. The actors on that jury in the reenactment really took this job seriously there was like one guy in the back that this white guy that had this look on his face like this guy is guilty as fuck (laughs) and you know that's like exactly what the jury looked like they were like why are you Mm -hmm. wasting us our time like he's guilty so the prosecution made three claims and i'm going to say right now that the claims about the gun are still confusing to me after i watch this episode twice but i'm going to do my best okay we're so, here for it. Although the murder weapon was never found, the bullets that killed Donna could have been fired from a Wolver PPK, which was a gun that John Brannion at one time had in his collection. Police claimed that Brannion denied ever owning this type of gun. However, they discovered that a 
this is the exact words, a Walther PPK had been sold to a man named Hooks. This man named Hooks said that he purchased the gun in question from Dr. Dr. Branion one year before. We are told this from the prosecutor. The prosecutor on this case was interviewed from so Unsolved Mysteries. So then how did he kill her with a gun if he sold it a year previously? I'm very confused about this. Here's the next point. Then Donna's brother testified on the stand that Branion told him that his Walther PPK had been stolen from his bedside the day of Donna's murder. And when the police questioned him about this gun, he didn't yet know that the gun had been sold. So he was somehow lying to them. But really, they had discovered that this gun had been sold. I don't understand what they're getting at with this gun evidence. Did he? I watched this episode twice. I still don't get it. Did he sell the gun a year previously and forget when he was first questioned by the police because his wife was dead and he wasn't really thinking clearly? So... His wife's brother testified that he still had this gun the day of the murder, but it was... Branyan told him that it had been stolen that day. But really, he had sold it a year before, but this was apparently the murder weapon, and that Branyan, they're saying, shot her. I'm very confused. I don't get it. It doesn't make much sense, but the, kind of the point is that it doesn't really matter what evidence they gave the jury. They were going to convict like they, him anyway. They didn't find this gun. No, they never found the gun. They just assumed that these bullets could have been shot from this gun. Yeah, that's not evidence. The other thing is that they found four shell casings, and they had discovered that there was a box of am- am- of 9 millimeter ammunition in Branyan's closet with exactly four casings missing, which they don't mention this in the show again, but she was thought shot 13 times. So irrelevant. So either... But like they're, they're claiming that they found a box of ammunition, and there was exactly four bullets missing. Yeah, but she and shot 13 found four bullet case, four shell casings next to her body. So, of course, he did it. But she was shot 13 times. Even if she so was... So where did the other bullets come from? Even if she shot four times, that doesn't prove he did it. It does not. It would prove that the ammunition was in the house. Yes. But it doesn't prove he did it. No, it doesn't really prove anything. And also, she was shot more times than that. So yeah. it's stupid. Nothing makes sense. So that was the second point. So we have the gun, which I don't understand. We have the gun evidence. I don't get it. And then we have the shell casings. And then they claim that John Branion had a motive. For six years, John had been having what they call in the episode an affair with a nurse at the clinic he worked at named Shirley Hudson. Donna knew about the affair, but the couple had not divorced. The prosecutor makes these ridiculous claims about basing his theory on the fact that John was trying to get out of this marriage without having to go through a divorce. Okay. Very reasonably, uh, present day John says that, yeah, I had a girlfriend for six years. It wasn't what he called, hilariously, a hot-on-the-burner affair. <laughs> he actually goes on to basically say that Donna was cool with it, and that so was Shirley. It kind of sounded like they had like an open relationship or like a mutually agreed-upon arrangement, which I realized at the time, I'm sure Unsolved Mysteries couldn't wrap their head around, but it seemed like his wife was fine with it. Maybe. His girlfriend was... He they, had a girlfriend and a wife, and they, they were both cool get with div- it. Getting divorced at this time was pretty scandalous. Yeah. Or maybe they were just kind of living... They didn't want to get... Div- like, it, rather than get divorced. Like, getting divorced was a big deal. So... Whatever their arrangement was, whether or not it was like a polyamorous situation, or if maybe, yeah, they just didn't want to get a divorce because get divorced, it was hard. And they both kind of had moved on. Who knows? It seems like... Whatever the arrangement was, they were all parties involved were fine with it. And he's completely right that why would he, after six years when things were going fine, suddenly decide to kill his wife? 
The thing is, just having an affair, even if his wife hated it, is not doesn't prove anything. No, it's not proof at all. Lots of people have affairs and murder no one. Yep. So this, I wouldn't even call this evidence circumstantial. It's like less than that. Yeah. Like, and there okay, was a, maybe he had a motive. Maybe he didn't. Like, it doesn't... And it seems very much like the prosecution just presented this affair, the fact of it, or whatever it was. He, they just, presented just this... scandalize people, and they'd be like, oh my goodness. They Did they present any witnesses that heard John say, I want to kill my wife to get out of this marriage? No. Or that he was even unhappy? Or that no. they had a fight, even? No. No. It was just this affair, quote-unquote, is happening. So those were the three pieces of evidence... The problem with the state's case, among other things, is that Branyan's neighbor heard the gunshots at 11.20 a.m. when Branyan was still at work where people saw him. Because yeah. they saw him leave his clinic at 11.35. He has an airtight alibi. So Unsolved Mysteries interviews this neighbor, and she is absolutely certain that she heard the gunshots ring out at 11.20 a.m. Crazily, the police claim they seem to just dismiss this offhand. Yeah. And they claim that... What, they're going to listen to a woman? No, Samantha. I mean, she was a white woman. <laughs> like, yeah. it seems like this person... She seemed totally ...would be credible level. in yeah. the eyes of this white jury. But apparently, yeah. they were able to just dismiss this and claim that they drove the route from Branyan's clinic to his house, and it took them six minutes, leaving plenty of time for him to apparently race home, kill his wife, and then race to his son's daycare, pick up his son, and get to his sister-in-law's work to meet her at the time they had agreed upon. Yeah, no. This is approximately 10 minutes that they say he could have done this. However, on the stand, the officer admitted that in this scenario, he allowed no time for Brandon to have actually gone into the daycare and picked up his son. If anyone has ever picked up a kid, <laughs> you'll know that that takes, that takes more than 10 minutes. <laughs> Particularly if that child had to put their shoes on. <laughs> so, so no. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's insane. And what I find the craziest is that we're apparently supposed to believe these people who say that he left, that they saw him leave his work, and that yeah. uh, his sister-in-law who saw him get to her office, but we're not supposed to believe this woman who heard the gunshots at 1120. Well, that doesn't fit the narrative. Because in order to make this work, you have to completely dismiss her hearing the gunshots. Right. So it none of this makes sense. Also, how many gunshots did you hear? Probably a lot. Yeah. I'm sure that was memorable. There were 13. <laughs> That's not going to be a situation where you go, oh. Was that a, a firecracker? Did a car backfire? Oh, I just heard 13 gunshots. Exactly. So unfortunately, none of Ridiculous. this affected the jury at all who convicted John of first degree murder. Brandon mm -hmm. appealed his case, but he lost it. And in 1971, was ordered to begin serving his sentence. However, he had been out on bail for three years while he was appealing the case. And um, after the Supreme Court finally denied hearing it, he jumped bail and fled the country and lived in Africa for 12 years before being apprehended in Uganda and brought back to Illinois to serve out his sentence. So prominent attorneys took up the case. This is Anthony D'Amato, who I mentioned earlier, and his wife, Barbara. They were fighting for clemency from the governor because this had gone all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. It can't go any higher. He was stuck in prison unless he gets clemency from the governor. They tested the same drive that the police did multiple times, and it took them no less than 11 minutes each time. Anthony D'Amato actually tells us that while the police claimed that they were able to make the drive in six minutes, they admitted that sometimes their test took them as long as 12 minutes. It's going to depend on traffic. Yeah. He wasn't making this in the dead of night. Exactly. And uh, they interview 
Barbara D'Amato for Unsolved Mysteries, and she said there is no way he could have done that in six minutes. If it was at midnight with no pedestrians around and he was speeding and he hit every green light, he could have done it maybe in six minutes, but that's not the case. Yeah. She's like, you can't drive through cars. <laughs> like, maybe that's a six-minute drive, but you can't just go through a car or a pedestrian. Yeah. This isn't in the middle of nowhere. This is in Chicago. Right. So the pathologist we mentioned earlier was also helping out, and he believes that Donna Branion was likely assaulted before she was shot, and that the attack <sighs> may have been perpetrated by two assailants. Sad. This is what he said. She had a groove around her neck that resembled a ligature mark, as if someone had been using a cord to restrain her. He believes that because the groove remained on her body in death, that she was shot while she was being restrained. Um, so he's basically speculating that she... Um, was restrained by one person and shot by another person. That's the end of the episode. I'm not, I think they were just trying to highlight this case because they were fighting for clemency. Sure. Um, in the update, John Branion was finally granted clemency in 1990 in consideration of his failing health, but he died one month later. So sad. It's really tragic. I did a little bit of Googling on the case. There is a book about it that was written by Barbara D'Amato. It's called The Doctor, The Murder, The Mystery, The True Story of, of the Dr. John Branion Murder Case. You can get it on Amazon. Um... I stumbled upon an article about Joby Branion, hmm. who was the son who saw his mom's body. Hmm. Uh, he grew up to become a very successful agent for the NFL. Oh, at, um, okay. He uh, at one in 2011, he worked for a private company that recruited players for the NFL. I guess today he started his own company, which he still works at, as far as I can tell today. Hmm. I read an article about it, and it sounds like a very glamorous profession. He seems very successful. It was interesting because the article sort of profiled him and talked a lot about his troubled childhood. Apparently, Joby was actually adopted by the Branyans, and he never knew his birth parents. Hmm. According to the article... Um, this is the article I read where it said that she was shot 13 times, which Unsolved Mysteries made it sound like four. Um, Joby describes the FBI stopping him on his way to school to ask him if he'd seen his father after his father fled the country. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, John Branion, while he was out on bail, married Shirley, the nurse he was having a, a supposed affair with, just before he fled out to Africa. Shirley raised Joby, and... Um, Joby went to a prestigious prep school where he excelled in football, but for some reason, uh, he his relationship with Shirley deteriorated, and he ended up moving in with his godparents before graduating high school. What I really liked about the article is it said that um, while growing up, his family never talked about the murder or about whether or not his father was guilty or innocent, he later became heavily involved in the fight for clemency, hmm. and he says that his father always loved him. And he tries to carry on that love in his relationship with his own kids and always tell them how much he loves them. And he also tries to be a father figure to his players that he recruits. He sort of takes this paternalistic attitude towards them and tries to protect them and do what's best for them. So, I mean, that's kind of a, if you need a bright spot (laughs) in this whole story, it seems like Joby grew up and had a really good life. And yeah, it's just, it's really sad. It's an injustice that's terrible. Yeah, I mean the the fate of having to deal with the sixty eight Chicago PD. Yeah. <laughs> I don't envy that for any person of color. That's the same year as the Democratic National Convention that famously cops just violently beat protesters. The yeah. following year, in sixty nine, the Chicago PD conspired with the FBI to break into the home of Fred Hampton 
and murder him in his sleep. They literally assassinate. He was a member of the Black Panthers. Yeah. And they literally broke into his house and shot him while he was sleeping. Yeah. Jan kind of hints at a theory in which he was set up by the police. I mean, he worked with the Black Panthers. It is. The Chicago PD openly was out to murder them. I, wonder, I don't think they cared if he was guilty or not. No, I won't say of course not. there's a conspiracy bigger than that, but I think it's very more than safe to say they were happy to lock him and up. And John Branion in his interview from prison basically says that. He says they saw an opportunity to put him away and they absolutely took it. So I don't yeah. know that even John himself thinks that the conspiracy was started by the police, but that at the very least, they saw an opportunity to put him in jail and didn't try they very like, hard great. to find the actual murderer. Yeah. Yeah. I would so, go along with that. Yeah. That's pretty awful. Whew. Well, the important thing is that we're so far ahead from that time. Yeah. We've moved on as a we've society. Moved on and racism I, is a thing of the past. I and can't we don't have to worry about imagine it. that similar injustices would exist today. Good thing we have the porpoise of justice here. I kept thinking crimes. while you were talking about that and how... Good thing Joffrey tapped out because he would have really hated the the telling of that mystery. I'm sure he would have. So good thing he's no longer with us. Uh, yeah, I don't even know what to say. It's terrible. Well, you can say things about a very sad orphan mystery oh. that we yeah, have we coming have up next. Missing kid store. Why? <laughs> Why do they do two in one episode? I don't well, get it. Couldn't we get? I would love a treasure right about now. <laughs> I would love things we never say. I remember when those something old, about aliens. Remember when those old people thought a ghost was ringing a bell, and I'm pretty sure that bell was about sexy time. I miss those mysteries. Oh, what I would give for a fortune teller scam. Okay, this is the case of Alberta Lane. Her father, Joseph. Let's just call him Joseph because I'm going to get that last name wrong. Is it Joseph Belly? <laughs> yeah, Joseph Belly. He was a radio Santa Claus. <laughs> I put that on your resume. Yeah. Did you even know that was a thing? And he was searching for his long lost daughter, Alberta Elaine. He lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and was hit hard by the Great Depression. The thing uniting both of these child stories. Yeah. It was hard to take care of your kids at this time. It was hard to really do anything. Huh. No parallels to today. That's what's important. So in 1937, there were, you know, we're still in like breadline time. Uh, Joseph was 20, and he got a job as a Western Union delivery boy, and he married a woman named Garnet. Garnet? Garnet. Yeah, sure. And within two months, she was pregnant. And they have this really cute reenactment of he's, like, at the Western Union place, and he gets the call that his wife went into labor, and he's, like, so excited. I know. It's because so she, sweet. Because it was early. They weren't, like, quite prepared. Um, so he was, like, quite surprised that she had already gone into labor, and he, like is telling everybody at his work and then rushes home and she's like in bed giving birth. The doctor hasn't gotten there yet. <laughs> I know. I look, again, I'm like Liz in the last segment. I don't even know what to say about this because it landlady, goes downhill fast. He calls the doctor, right? So he like has to like jump in and deliver the baby and he just has like the cutest like old man phrases about everything. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. He was like, I didn't expect the baby to rush right out and say hello. <laughs> With the doctor not even being there. Just like all these cute so little... cute. Oh my goodness. I'm already gonna... I didn't cry watching this, but now I feel like I'm gonna cry talking <laughs> about it. Okay. So, the doctor 
doesn't get there forever. The baby's, like, already delivered. They weren't expecting the baby to come, so they don't have a bassinet or anything. And they, like, put some blankets in a drawer and, like, make her a little bed. And then eventually the doctor shows up and is just like, yeah, everybody's fine. And Bye. leaves. Bye. Not a great doctor. No. Because Garnet died hours after giving birth. Yeah. And she really, like, she clearly knew something was wrong and said you know, if something happens to me, I want Alice Miller to take care of the baby, who was someone who had been sort of like a mother to her and part of her upbringing. Yep. So she was like, if something happens to me, I want Alice Miller to have the baby. And Joseph Felix is like, okay, like, why? And then his wife passes away. passes away. It's so sad. I know. Okay, so he... Did as his dying wife's declaration. I mean, he has to work at the Western Union. They said that he was having trouble finding work. It seems like maybe he lost his job at the Western Union or it wasn't paying enough for him to support. He was giving money for the care of his daughter, but he wasn't making enough. So he ended up going into the military. Also, uh, Pearl Harbor happens. Yeah. So he enlists in the army. He's going to go to basic training at Fort Devens in Massachusetts. Um, he, like, you see a reenactment of him giving the baby to Alice Miller and asking if it's going to be any trouble and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, no, it's fine. Like, what a cute baby. Blah, blah, Great. So he goes off to the army. And off to war. Off to war. And he's shipped out to the Pacific Theater. And during this time, he never forgot his kid. And he had a little picture and a prayer book and blah, blah, blah. And he kept writing to Alice Miller and his daughter, but wasn't getting any response. Which I can't even imagine. That's so sad. You're like off at war. And he did this essentially to make a better life for his daughter. Yeah. And then he's like, how's the baby doing? Nothing? Oh. So in 1943, he suffered a head injury during air raid drills in the Panama Canal Zone. After that, he was still in pain and was brought to a Boston hospital for further treatment. On the way, his plane stopped at an airport in Pittsburgh, and he called Alice to see how his daughter was doing. So it's been, like, four years, four or three years since he left her with the baby. He's gotten no word. She hasn't returned any of his letters. He eventually is able to make a phone call, and he can't, Alice Miller is, like, not even there when he calls, and then they're like, oh, we thought you were dead. We gave that baby up for adoption. Yeah, I wish I knew who answered the phone, because they clearly knew about this. Yeah, an unknown woman answered. And she was like, oh, uh, you? We really didn't expect to be hearing from you. And the woman told him that the adoption records were sealed and that he would never see his daughter again. Horrible. Lovely. So despite his best efforts, Joseph has been unable to locate his daughter. In 1946, he married for a second time. Him and his new wife moved to New England. He worked as a clerk for the VA. Um, a year later, at Christmas time, I don't know how this happened, but he phoned a girl in the neighborhood pretending to be Santa Claus. Okay, have you heard of these Santa Claus apps for children? Yes, and where I where you can set your phone them. to call, like Santa Claus will call you and can talk to your kid. And it'll tell you, you can like preset it. So like my kid didn't clean his room. So Santa Claus will call and say, uh, I heard that you didn't clean your room. You're on the naughty list. You better clean up your act if you want presents. Terrible. It's not something I would do if I, but I'm not a parent. So I guess whatever. Uh, I feel like that might have been the same situation. Although maybe like not to like, 
well, he's named like, the kid, maybe just to like brighten her see, day. See, the only time I've... I'm going to clarify me saying that I hate this. The only time that I have seen this used is to like terrorize a little child <laughs> where the parents kept being like, if you're not good, we're going to call Santa. And every time they reached for the phone, the kid was like, no, no, no. I would like start crying because they didn't want Santa to not bring them. And it just like, I don't know, it was awful. So ew. Ew to that. Don't I mean, do that. It does seem slightly traumatizing. Although I guess if you're using them like in a positive oh, way. Oh, you know what I also hate? That elf on the shelf. <laughs> I hate that thing. It's still, Why like, do you hate, what do you have against the elf on the shelf? Listen, no, not okay. That is to indoctrinate your children <laughs> to a surveillance state. Also, okay. tell us more. Because the idea is that the elf watches you at all times and reports back to Santa, so you have to be good. Is that really how it goes? I don't have yes. kids, so I don't know these things. Yes. I just thought you posed them in funny things. And like well, the, people do that too. The elf gets into trouble at night. But the idea is that the elf is always watching you to report back to Santa. He's like a about, spy. Oh, I did not know this about the story. Santa equals the government, everyone. You have to be on your best behavior at all times because <laughs> of the stupid elf. Also, hilariously, I met those women that made the elf on the shelf at like a gift show years and years ago. Oh. Where they were like trying to peddle that thing hard and no one cared. I worked at a, a store that sold soaps at the time. So we were there to look at for like stuff like that. And they were like, no, you should totally get this elf on the shelf thing. People you are going to love it. should have jumped on that bandwagon. And we were like, ew, gross. No, never. It's never going to work. And then it became like the hugest thing ever. But... In my mind, I still see them trying to shill this thing that no one wanted, which was basically they just took, you know, they used to have little, the elf concept's not new. They just like remade an elf thing that they had as a child and made this story about, oh, you got to keep this elf out so Santa knows you've been good. Have you seen the- Big Brother is watching you at all times. I didn't realize that that was part of it. I thought it was a little more lighthearted than that. That is slightly terrifying. <laughs> Have you seen, though, the mensch on a bench for Jewish ch- Jewish children? No. That was a Shark Tank-like product that the sharks loved and I think is hilarious and also very nice. It's very inclusive. Yeah. They filled a hole in the market. And you can buy them, I think, at Michael's now. Oh. So if you don't celebrate Christmas because you don't want you're a Jewish. stupid elf. But you still want to indoctrinate your children. <laughs> It's, yeah, if you want to make sure they know that the government is watching them at all times, which maybe they should know that, but you should not act like that's good. Maybe that would sure. be the different way to do the elf on the shelf. Sure. It'd be like anything you type in your computer, the NSA knows. Who's the NSA? This elf. <laughs> <laughs> my parents, for my birthday, used to make little, this little like felt thing that supposedly an elf had left, but it was really cute. It wasn't scary like that. Like, they would write, like, tiny little cards that supposedly the elf had written. They were, like, this big, you know? So your parents really were the first inventors of the elf on the shelf. I should probably sue those women. Get on that, parents. What was I talking about? I have no idea. Oh, yes. So, Joseph Felix Belly, not his name, uh, calls a kid in the neighborhood pretending to be Santa Claus. And, of course, she loves it. And in the reenactment, they have him. He has, like, little bells. And he has... A little snow globe. A little snow globe. To set the mood. And, and things to make... He's, like, hitting water glasses to make some, like, chimey noises. And, you know, so it sounds like the North Pole. And uh, Yeah. It's, so he's got this whole cute. setup to say, like, oh, 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 have you been a good girl? It's, it's Santa also Claus. heartbreaking because it's like, this guy would make a great dad. I know. So then you're just like, I, you know that well, his daughter is out there. Kind of the thing they're 
they're they don't literally say like he clearly missed his daughter so much that he wanted to pretend to be santa to neighborhood children but it's sort of implied yep so this girl liked it so much that other children started to ask him to do it and then a year later the local radio put him on the air and callers from across the country would call him in order to talk to santa which what i know so so it's so sweet but so sad original air date for this was december 20th 1989 sadly this has a terrible ending (laughs) and i'm so sorry and okay we're just good so it's solved (laughs) after a 47 year search for his daughter joseph received the most heartbreaking news a viewer in pittsburgh began to trace joseph's family tree the viewer nancy bartu soon discovered from newspaper articles that alberta had tragically died in an explosion what in july 25th 1957 in erie pennsylvania at the age of 18 she thought that both of her parents were deceased Okay, this is crazy. Her estranged husband, Paul DePew, had rigged his car with dynamite after his last attempt to reconcile with her and had failed. The explosion killed them both, along with an innocent bystander. Oh my god. This was not in the episode. No, they sort of allude like she died in an accident or something. Yeah, she was murdered in a murder-suicide from her, I'm gonna guess, abusive husband that just killed a person that happened to be near this car rigged with dynamite. Oh my god. According to Unsolved Mysteries Wiki, Joseph was saddened to learn of his daughter's death, but content with the fact that his search was over. Really? I doubt it! Really, he was content to find out his daughter had blown up with dynamite at the age of 18? Oh my god. This is awful. This is the worst Christmas special ever! This is the worst Christmas special ever. This is even Merry worse. Christmas, everyone! This is even worse than our Forensic Files oh my God. Christmas special. Yeah. Yeah. So, you can find uh, Garnet and Alberta on Find a Grave. And I'm very sorry for Joseph Felix. Oh Radio Santa. Guy who tr- seemed to truly, honestly love his daughter. Yeah. And he was such a sweet old man, and you should... Some, if you could somehow only watch this segment for his hilarious little phrases and Pittsburgh accent, but oh it's a real bummer of a it's story. It's a real bummer. I wish I knew why they gave her up for adoption. Like, the woman they, he left her with seemed like she was rather old. I wonder if she died and the family just decided to give this yeah. baby up for adoption. Yeah. And they were just making up some story about, oh, we thought you were dead. Like, clearly, that's not true. See, yeah. If he hadn't, maybe they didn't get the letters and they heard that he got injured, but they thought he was dead. I don't know. The I, thing of it is, is if the the woman who had the baby seemed like she genuinely wanted to take care of her. Yeah. Why would she give her up for adoption just because he died? Right. Like, that doesn't make any sense so to me. So in my mind, have, I think maybe she passed away and she her biological children. She or fallen ill and was no longer able to take care of her. Yeah, and, and her biological children were like, well, children we didn't know how to shitty. get a hold of you, so we just got rid of the kid. Yeah, it's horrible. You would hope that Also, he, the adoption agency did he that didn't have, check to he see if he was still alive? He like, didn't what? have any family for them to contact? I have no idea. Yeah. Or like, why did the adoption agency just say, oh, yeah, sure, we'll give away this baby for you? Was it Georgia Tan's adoption agency? I mean, no. But 
That's the shit you could get away with in the 40s. I guess. Fuck. This is terrible. You, you could just show up with kids and go, yeah, I got this in a hat box. And <laughs> people would not question that for decades. Yeah. Okay. Well, should we rate this episode? Yeah, it's terrible. I don't like it at all. Mysteriousness. None of these are no, mysterious. Not that mysterious. Thumbs I down. guess who killed Donna? Who actually killed Donna? That's a mystery. That's but a mystery. that's not really what the story is about. No. So thumbs down. But we don't know. Yeah. I mean, was it? I don't feel like it was the Chicago PD. No. I think they just it either been a robbery framed gone him wrong. or didn't. I, yeah, it seems like it's probably a robbery gone wrong. Um, reenactments. I don't know that anything stood out for me in the reenactments. I like the, the, the hat box, box baby, baby reenactment, but eh, we're okay. Sideways. So I'm like a, th- a sideways fashion. Uh, yes. I don't, I don't remember anything. No. I not. also don't know that I have an MVM. John Brannion had a pretty sweet mustache. Yeah, I, I wrote, I I picked him. He's really the only, mu- there was like the prosecutor, the shitty prosecutor who put him away. <laughs> Is that his mustache? Yeah. The picture you drew? I called it the classic. Uh, <laughs> looking at it, it looks a little bit more like a caterpillar. A little but- bit. Whatever. Yeah, I guess he wins by default. Well, I'm not giving it to the shitty prosecutor, so no. it has to be John Brannion. Um, and Robert Stack barely showed up in this episode. He has so that coat, but other than that. He's done that before, so whatever. Yeah. Thumbs down. This is a shitty episode in general. How many Robert Stacks do you give it? I wouldn't recommend this to anyone. No. This is the thing. So I think I'm like a two. I would say two. Two out of five Robert Stacks on this I mean, one. I guess if you need, like... To be sad. If you need a good cry. Yeah. Oh, there's even better mysteries yeah. to watch than that than That's, this one for that. I would only recommend this for your segment if you for some reason needed like proof of an injustice. Sure. I don't know. Could this like if you were in an argument with someone and you were like that person was going, No, the police have always wanted to help people, you could go, Oh yeah <laughs> and show I don't know. I can't I what? Guess, yeah, I don't know. What? I don't know. Yeah, I would give it maybe a one and a half. Yeah, this isn't a great one. It's a bummer. It's two of the things are about missing kids. The Christmas angle is warps, if anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not cheery at all. So I wouldn't recommend this. No, one. no. Do you have a recommendation? <sighs> I do, and it's moping. No wait, that's just what I've been doing all week. <laughs> Never mind. It's. I mean, that could be your recommendation. My recommendation is being barely able to function under the weight of current events. Oh, I don't recommend that at all. <laughs> but I am also an expert on it. My recommendation is what I would recommend for some summer reading. Ooh, okay. what I, I envy the person who has not read this book because I would love to be able to read it for the first time. Okay. And that is a book called In Youth is Pleasure by Denton Welch. Okay. Which was first published in, I wrote it down, <laughs> 1945. I heard of this book because it was recommended by John Waters. And as you have probably noticed by his name constantly coming up on this podcast, it's someone whose opinion I take very, very <laughs> seriously. There are a few things on this earth I take seriously. I had trouble taking my own wedding seriously. <laughs> but I take John Waters' opinion on things very seriously. And in his book, Role Models, he had a list of five books you should read to live a happy life if something is basically the matter with you. (laughs) Obviously, it's like he's speaking right to me, right? Sure. And he recommended this book. Denton Welch was an English painter who was partially paralyzed in a bicycle accident and no longer able to paint. So he ended up becoming a writer, which is weird because he's really good at it. And it seems like he was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do now, so I guess I'm a writer. (laughs) 
And one of the things he wrote is this book. It's sort of an autobiographical coming-of-age story about a kid who's 15. It's the summer. He really doesn't want to go back to school. He's staying at a hotel with his family that he kind of despises and doesn't have anything in common with. And this is something I wrote down from a Goodreads review that I thought really summed it up, in which nothing happens, really, but it happens perfectly. (laughs) It's like, yes, it's just a beautiful, stunning book, but I couldn't really tell you, like, what's it about. Okay. Because it doesn't have so much of a plot. It's just this weird, introverted, very fey kid going about his summer. Sounds lovely, actually. Here is what John Waters had to say about it. Maybe there is no better novel in the world than Denton Welch's In Youth is Pleasure. Just holding it in my hands, so precious, so beyond gay, so deliciously subversive, is enough to make illiteracy a worse social crime than hunger. Oh my god, that is a glowing review. Yeah, it's it's a really, really beautiful read. If you like books with like stunning, poetic, Proustian descriptions of things... If you want to read things just for, like, good language and not so much plots. Sure. This is a book for you. The edition that I read, which I got from my local library, uh, also had a novella called I Left My Grandfather's House, which is just his account of a walking tour around England. And that's also really beautiful. Yeah, I don't know. I finally have gotten around to reading Speaking of Language, that book you borrowed to me that you recommended on the podcast called Native Tongue. Oh, yeah. By Susanna Elin? I think Suzette, Suzette, Elgin, something. Yes. And it is extremely good. You failed to mention how many aliens are in that book. Oh, that's true. There's a ton of aliens. Which was surprising to me in a great way. Yeah. Feminist sci-fi filled with aliens is right up my alley. Yeah. So I'm really enjoying it. So I'm sure that I would enjoy this book as well. I'm serious that I'm like jealous of someone who hasn't read it because I would love to spend. It's it's very short. It's like 145 pages. You could could read it in a weekend. And it's just a lovely, lovely way to spend a sunny afternoon. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Do you want to know another lovely book to read in a sunny afternoon? Yes, because I love this book also. It is Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues and the Heroes Who Fought Them by Jennifer Wright, which is my recommendation this month. At the top of the show, I mentioned reading five books this month. To be perfectly transparent, I read this book twice (laughs) because I loved it so much. We read this book for our book club. It's phenomenal. We are in a true crime book club, and every year we take a break from true crime to read something that we consider true crime adjacent, and we voted this month, and everyone overwhelmingly voted for this book, which I believe came out last year by Jennifer Wright. I've never read anything by Jennifer Wright. I have already purchased another book that she wrote because I adored this book. I knew I would like it because I am weird. Like, I loved those books about dead bodies we talked about at one point, because I'm just morbid, and I have a, like, I'm fascinated by gross things. Um, so I knew I'd like a book about plagues, but I did not expect have this book be so hilarious. That's the thing is it's hilarious. It's, it's not just informational. Like it's really cleverly written and like laugh out loud funny yes. while teaching you about plagues. It's amazing. The description of the, this book is a witty, irreverent tour of history's worst plagues from the Antonine plague to leprosy to polio. 
and a celebration of the heroes who fought them. So this book is packed with information. You learn so much. So you learn about plagues that you've never heard of. My favorite is the story of the dancing plague. It's crazy. It's insane. So it's exactly what it sounds like. People in a small town suddenly start dancing. They can't stop. They literally danced until their bones went through their feet. There is some misogynistic assholes who claim that like women were just dancing to piss off their husbands. But for the most part, the town rallied to find a cure for these people. They built a stage for them to dance on, which turns out wasn't a good idea, but it shows how hard they were trying. (laughs) Um, They brought in like they brought these people to a shrine to the patron saint of dancing. Um, they kept them fed and hydrated. And all this support and kindness actually seemed to work because it's suspected that the dancing plague was a psychological response to having thoughts or urges they were taught were sinful, which you can kind of imagine, like in a time where having what we would probably consider today to be perfectly normal, like sexual desires, for example, it was so shameful that back then they sure. would have thought they literally were going to go to hell. So their bodies just revolted against these urges and they started doing crazy things like dancing and then i think there maybe was an element of mass hysteria after like one or two people sure caught the plague um so that's a story i had never heard of i also like the idea that like oh you want to get back on to your husband would you dance until your feet literally fell off yeah this per- the first person who started dancing collapsed in the street because of exhaustion and dehydration and their bones were poking out of their skin And then um, as soon as she woke up, she got up and started dancing again. And this one asshole was like, oh, she's just doing it because her husband hates dancing. If she did that out of spite, (laughs) kudos to her. That's incredible. So it's so fascinating. And her commentary throughout the book. Hilarious. Is so funny. I was laughing out loud both times I read this. It's She just makes these really marked points like perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I've learned so much. Yeah. And you learn about diseases that you think you know about like polio or leprosy. Like these are diseases we've heard of but then there's parts of the story and characters who she brings up who fought these diseases and were heroes in her words. And it's so interesting. I didn't realize that leprosy doesn't make parts of you fall off. No. It just makes you go numb. So, like, your feet go numb. And so you then, don't notice when you're injured. Yeah. I thought it, like, rotted you. Yeah. But like you know what like did rot you? Syphilis. Yeah. Apparently rotted your face off. Yeah, you could not have a nose uh-huh. from syphilis. And she told the hilarious story about the No Nose Club, where all those guys with syphilis got, had a little, like, club where they all got together well, and they, laughed about how they had no noses. no one could talk about, despite the fact that everyone had syphilis. Like, yeah. Everyone. Like Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Had syphilis. But no one was supposed even to talk today, about Even today, no one will talk about how Abraham Lincoln had syphilis, even though, like, his friend confirmed it. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend the audiobook, which is how I listen to it. It's pretty short. It's, like, five or six hours. That's why I was able to get through it twice. The problem is, is that I binge listened to this in, like, two days, the beginning of the month, and our book club is at the end of the month, so I was like, shit, I'm going to forget all this stuff. So then I listened to it again, and it was just as enjoyable the second time as it's, how much I loved it. It's really enjoyable. She apparently wrote a book about killer fashion, well, like corsets killing yeah. people, and I'll, I'm definitely going to read that one. There's one about like the worst breakups in history. That's the one I bought with okay. an Audible credit, so I'll report back on. Oh, I'm okay. sure that one's going to be just as good as this. Yeah, one. I haven't been reading as much as I used to. I find it kind of hard to focus. I wonder why. I wonder what could be going on that leaves me so constantly distracted. I know, but this is like the best thing I've read in years. It's really good. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. And I think if you don't gravitate towards nonfiction, this might be a book that you would enjoy 
Yeah, it's it's very enjoyable. It's not dry. The stories are also short enough that it's like just the right amount. So yeah. you get a story and it's really good. She also talks about things that we I don't think necessarily think of as plagues, like lobotomies. Oh, yeah. Like she goes through that, which when she describes it, it's like, yeah, that was definitely a plague, even though it was a man-made plague. Right. And it wasn't a disease at all. I mean, they were using it to quote unquote treat diseases, but right. really they weren't. They were just rendering people so gross brain dead essentially so i really loved it she in the epilogue she talks briefly about hiv and aids in a way that i think is really well done she basically talks about how she's trying to tell the stories of people who can no longer speak for themselves and there's Mm. people Mm -hmm. right now who are telling the story of aids survivors and the people who fought for the rights of people who have aids um but she does briefly talk about it and it's extremely well done it's very sad it made me cry um so yeah i can't recommend this book enough i love it yeah it's really good i didn't expect to love it as much as i did i'm glad we picked this one me too sure also everyone did you know that you can return your audible books and get other books (laughs) they have the great listen guarantee which i try not to abuse but i do return a lot of audiobooks if i don't like them which is really nice because credits are expensive audiobooks are expensive yeah so well, sometimes the reader is just terrible and mm-hmm. you can't get into it. Even a good book. You know how my voice is grating on you right now? Imagine hearing that for 12 hours. No, right? So you can see why you might need to return an audiobook or two. Sure. <laughs> anyway, should we plug our shit? I suppose. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Perhaps It's You. If you want to send us a paranormal tale about a ghost you saw they're trickling in i haven't read any of them yet i'm really excited yeah we're we're not reading them at the moment because we want to be surprised we're going to do that for our season two finale it looks like we're going to have enough stories so please send yours in if you got abducted by an alien if your grandparents had a ghost that rang a bell if the local legend in your town yeah if you saw bigfoot if definitely i want to hear about that if you bought some spray that kept bigfoot away if I don't even know. That's the whole story. Bigfoot was repelled by the spray. I know because I didn't see him. (laughs) Someone had to cut Robert Stack's hair, and I'm still, like, waiting to hear from that person. They're out there. They're out there. Yeah. Come on. Where is Robert Stack's hairdresser? You can send those stories to perhapsitsyoupodcast at gmail.com. There's also a form on our website, perhapsitsyou.com. You can just fill that out, send it to us. Yeah. It'll go straight to our inbox. We appreciate it. stories about how amazing Elizabeth Taylor was. I'll take those two. She appears in this book I just recommended. She was an activist for AIDS research. She gave thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars for AIDS research research, and really lobbied for the government to stop sitting on its fucking hands. She was running like a medicine ring out of her house or whatever. Yeah. For AIDS drugs that weren't being given to people. Not only did she have a threesome with Robert Stack and fucking JFK, an amazing accomplishment, she did something perhaps even more important. <laughs> saving lives. So send us those stories. <laughs> uh, check out our Twitter for an awesome stock photo of Robert Stack, by the way. Oh, yes. I can't remember the name of the movie, but Robert Stack and Elizabeth Taylor were in a movie together. Which I think that prom photo is really from that movie. I don't think it's them a prom. Oh, okay. But anyway. Still, it's a prom. Sure. Even if it's fake. Yeah. But if you went to real prom with Robert Stack, yes. write in. That's perhaps it's you. Podcast. Gmail. Dot. Come. Give us some money on Patreon and you will get bonus episodes. This week we're releasing one about Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. Do you want to tell them what we're doing for next month? Something very related to Unsolved Mysteries. Should we announce that? Why not? I think we should. Go ahead. We're doing Kitchen Nightmares. 
the Amy's Baking Company episode, which I've mentioned doing as a joke like once. And then like one person on our Facebook page really asked for it. I think maybe also as a joke. And that's all the encouragement I yeah, needed to actually Dawn do it. happening. One person asked for it. I love that. Ep- Liz has never seen it. I've never seen it. So we're going to watch it together and then we're going to immediately record that episode for Patreon. I think it's going to be amazing. And it's totally, totally related. We'll connect it somehow. Don't worry about it. Is it a mystery where the server's tips went? Yeah. Is it a mystery why they make such shitty food? Yeah, that's a mystery. Right? Yeah. Okay. It's not unsolved so... mystery. It's our podcast. We do what we want. So you can give any amount on Patreon and you will get a bonus episode every month. You're also going to get some stickers, which are about ready to go out. Yeah. And a personalized postcard from us. Yeah. And probably other things in the future. So it's super cool and you should do it. Yeah. And also give us a five-star review. On the only type, podcast. The only type of review we accept. Five out of five Robert Stacks. That's it? Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Get out there and solve some mysteries, bitches. Bye. Bye.